After a series of starts, stops, twists, turns, and loop-de-loops, Governor Eric Greitens finally got his wish last week when his appointees to the Missouri Board of Education dismissed Margie Van Dieven. Since the legislature adjourned in May, Greitens made a series of appointments to the State Education Board. Some were removed because they refused to fire the Education Commissioner, while at least one, former Senator Delbert Scott, was ineligible to serve. But last week, Greitens finally got five of his appointees to agree on Van Dieven's exit. In remarks to the media, Van Dieven lamented on what she felt was a politicized process to remove her from her post. The job of commissioner in Missouri is traditionally not a political role. But at the moment, political forces are eclipsing educational decisions. And although I didn't come to Jefferson City to fight... I'm willing to fight for children and teachers. During his gubernatorial campaign, Greitens specifically rejected then-Governor Jane Nixon's line in the sand to veto any bill that provided public aid to private schools. He also got behind an unsuccessful effort this year in the legislature to expand charter schools, which was deeply unpopular among rural and suburban administrators. Eddie Justice, a Greitens appointee who voted to oust Van Dieven, said the personnel move was necessary to improve the standing of Missouri schools. I think we need to change the culture in our education bureaucracy in the state of Missouri, and the way you effectively begin to change the culture is to change the leadership. Longtime state board member Mike Jones disagreed. This board has lost its legitimacy as a governing body. I think this board today forfeited its right to ask for your cooperation in implementing public policy. On this episode of the Politically Speaking podcast, we talk with Democratic State Representative Gina Mitten about how legislators may respond to the turmoil at the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. We also chat with the Richmond Heights Democrat about her party's agenda in next year's legislative session. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking Podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Reitens, Navy (laughs) SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to Politically Speaking, the only show about Missouri politics featuring a co-host who will never see another Transformers movie again until Michael Bay personally apologizes to him for Transformers 2. I am that co-host, St. Louis Public Radio interim political editor Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me in studio today is... Joe Manis, who is drinking her last diet lime coke in, I mean, in existence until they start reproduction, which I'm told is going to be soon, but I'm... For fans of our show who listened to uh, <laughs> Joe's plate the last time, it is a tragedy of epic proportions. Yes, it is. And joining us in studio for the second time, uh, the assistant minority leader for the Missouri House. Gina Mitten, state representative. And uh, just remind our listeners what your district encompasses. Uh, my <laughs> district is the 83rd district. So um, all of Maplewood, all of Rock Hill, portions of Richmond Heights where I actually live, portions of Webster Groves, Almost all of Brentwood, and then a third of my voters are in the city of St. Louis um, in parts of the 24th, 23rd, and 10th Ward, or roughly the Clifton Heights, Ellendale, Franz Park neighborhood. 
and I don't mean this as a sign of disrespect because I'm in your district every day, but it is one of the weirdly weirdest drawn <laughs> districts in the entire state. It, I have no clue what the judges were thinking when they drew that. Um, they might have been drinking a Diet Coke with lime when they did it. That's actually no, no, no. True. If they did, if, if they were drinking Diet Coke with lime, they would have made no mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but um, we'll we'll avoid that that discussion for now because we have a lot to talk about. One of the reasons we wanted to have Representative Mitten on the show is because there's been major, major developments at the Missouri Department of Elementary and Secondary Education. As we heard at the beginning of the show, uh, Margie Van Dieven is out as the Commissioner of Education. It's caused a lot of controversy. And I, and I want to make clear before we start the show, it's not only Democrats who are upset with the governor, it's Republicans too. So I don't want to make this discussion a Republican versus Democratic thing because there's been bipartisan scorn for this. And there's been some praise mainly on the Republican side. So as, with that as a backdrop, what was your reaction over the last few weeks when this entire process unfolded? Because it was quite messy. <laughs> well, uh, let's see. If my math is correct, I think that it took 10 attempts from the governor to um, make appointments to stick for five members um, that would ultimately be the five that voted to oust Commissioner Van Dieven on, on what was that, last Friday, I guess. Last Friday, yes. Um, so that obviously, first and foremost, is a concern. I think that you know there are provisions in statute that would indicate that the removal of some of these members who had been sworn in and acted in their capacity as commissioners on the State Board of Education and were later removed for no cause, just sort of bumped off. There is certainly legal controversy about that, a lawsuit pending about that. But ultimately, at the end of the day, he, you know, he did manage to get five members that were willing to um, oust a commissioner that was well-liked in a bipartisan fashion. I actually talked to one of the board members that voted to oust Van Dieven today. It, his name is Eddie Justice. He's from Poplar Bluff. He's been active in Republican politics for many years in southeast Missouri. I asked him directly what was the rationale for dismissing Van Dieven. This is what he told me. I can't speak for the other members. They all have their own motives, I'm sure. My motives are pretty simple. I believe that the culture of our education bureaucracy in Missouri needs to change. And in order for that to change, we need new leadership. Six, over 60% of Missouri's fourth and eighth graders cannot read proficiently. That is unacceptable. And to accept that is to accept the status quo. Um, there are a lot of future indicators based on those, on those numbers, uh, some of which include our economic future, as well as the future of and numbers of people we incarcerate. So we have got to get to a point where we're doing a better job of teaching our children to read. And those numbers um, of proficiency are not just limited to reading, but are uh, go across the board, whether it's um, his social studies or uh, math or science. Um, we just aren't cutting the mustard right now. So I know education holds a dear place in your heart. Your husband is actually on the, the school board at Maplewood Richmond Heights, which has, I think, improved dramatically in its test scores over the last few years and is becoming one of the most desirable school districts in the entire region. When you hear something like that, what's your reaction? Well, I think that there's a number of I think there's a number of issues and, and first and foremost is obviously if you know Having those that figure, and, and honestly, I can't off the top of my head confirm whether that's true or not, 
every Missourian wants to make sure that we have a good public education system. Every parent um, and wants to make sure that their children are able to go to public school and be well educated. However, one of the things that that comment doesn't play doesn't even address is the fact that poverty is one of the biggest factors in determining a child's success at school. And it's not whether or not Commissioner Van Dieven is the, is the whether or not Ms. Van Dieven is or was the commissioner, but poverty. So until we address that, and frankly, um, look at the wraparound services that are needed in every public school district, the status quo is going to remain. It's not about the bureaucracy, it's about attacking the problem. Well, one of the uh, governor's chief objectives, and I'm not taking sides here, is that he wants someone who is more amenable to charter schools and to vouchers. Um, Now, that is a very hot topic, especially among rural Republicans who aren't keen on that because they don't have – there aren't enough people there to have those kinds of schools. And so they're big on their public schools. So they see this as – is taking money away from the public schools, which is similar to what some critics say in the the urban areas. The backdrop is I noticed that the board member did not mention those things. Um, from your take, what are you hearing? Do you think the governor is going to be, A, bringing up some legislation that is tied to those issues during the next session and tying this to these percentages and his change in uh, the, the state board or are there other things? I'm, I'm trying to get a handle of what his next step is. Well, I don't think that anybody knows what the governor. So, I, you know, with that backdrop, look, we've seen charter school expansion bills, I think, every single year since I've been in the legislature, and I'm sure every single year for years before that. So the desire to expand charter schools statewide is not going to go away, and this is, this is going to exacerbate the issues as far as I'm concerned. If I remember correctly, last year, the charter school expansion bill passed the House with one vote to spare. I think it was earlier this year, still 2017. Oh, I guess it's right. Last legislative I, I session. I make that mistake right. all the time right. because it feels like May was 10 years ago at this point, <laughs> but continue. Yes, fair enough. So yes, in the 2017 legislative session, if memory serves, the charter school expansion bill passed with one vote. And if I remember correctly also, those that wasn't like an easy an, an easy those weren't easy votes to get let's put it that way i believe that the board was actually open for a little bit in order to make sure that everybody was they are unable to push their their cast their vote, but it it went nowhere in the Senate. And given the shenanigans, and I, I think I've used that hashtag on this subject more than once to sort of stop the shenanigans. But given the shenanigans that have gone on from the governor's office about the removal of Ms. Van Dieven, I don't see the Senate having any greater appetite for that this year. I want to play another clip from Eddie Justice because I asked him what influence the governor had on his vote. It's a pretty long clip because there's a follow-up question, but I wanted to make sure that the context was there. Here is more of my conversation with Mr. Justice. I was never asked to vote any particular way. I was never pressured to do anything, and I was my appointment came with no conditions. I knew that our education system needed to be improved. And I knew that the culture of our educa- of our educational bureaucracy needed to change, and I, I firmly believe that when those th- when those factors are needed to change, that um, leadership is usually the best place to start. I, like I said before, I was never given any conditions on my appointment, um, and I did what I thought was best for Missouri's children and for our educational system, and. Um, the governor never had to come to me and 
ask me to do anything, nor did he, or any of his staff. The There were several other appointees that were either removed or voluntarily resigned because they said that they they were didn't agree with the, this decision to get rid of Van Dieven. Doesn't that suggest that the governor did have a role in this entire situation? I don't think that it's my place to comment on that specifically because I wasn't there. Um, I can only talk about my personal uh, experience with the governor and the governor's office. I don't necessarily think that there is a problem if there had been conversations because obviously no governor wants to appoint somebody who's going to uh, directly um, counter what he believes is the correct direction for Missouri in education or any other department for that matter. Um, When the governor is held accountable for the quality of education in Missouri during his tenure, it's obvious that he should have some say in who's making the decisions. How much say is more up to other people than me and with people with a higher pay grade than myself. Uh, but I do think he should have some influence uh, because obviously he's being held accountable for the results. Now, obviously, that was a long clip, but it kind of goes into my next question. And we've, I think, gone back and forth a little bit about this on Twitter. One of the things that I heard throughout this entire process was criticism that the governor's intervention in this entire situation was wrongly political and unprecedented. And I put forward several other instances outside the Board of Education where a governor clearly had an influence in getting somebody appointed that was allied to them. Happened numerous times during the Nixon administration. I'm sure it happened during Blunt, Holden, Carnahan, going back to like antiquity. So my question is, why is it wrong for the governor to want to have a say who the education commissioner is when it's happened in other sectors of Missouri government before? I I don't know that anybody's necessarily saying that. But again, under the law, the governor's role is to appoint the commissioners, period. Um, And obviously, the governor is going to want to appoint commissioners that fall – any governor is going to want to appoint commissioners that fall in line with his or her prerogatives. But the point here is not so much about the appointments. It was the appointments have been – they were not confirmed by the Senate. And to take such a drastic action before Senate confirmation, I do believe is unprecedented. And I'm I'm sure if you – you'll you'll be the person to tell me if I'm wrong on that front. I'm sure that that is an element that – that that takes in the unprecedentedness into account. And, and second of all, what's the rush? What is the rush? Honestly, what is the problem with making the appointments, getting them confirmed by the Senate, and then and then going through those that process in a contemplative and deliberate fashion? Let the commissioners have an opportunity to work with this, with the Ms. Van Dieven and understand exactly how this works. But honestly, I can't think of any job where I would be on the job. In this instance, we had in two separate occasions folks that were literally on the job hours. If you know if not minutes, and taking the drastic action of firing your CEO or your, you know, your basically your executive leader. That just that just doesn't happen and it shouldn't happen. And Missourians do, do deserve better. And it's not about the governor's prerogative necessarily. It's, it's also the fact that I think that at least two members were removed against illegal, illegally, you know. Now, um, the session's going to be starting in about a month. 
Do you think that this dispute, I mean, obviously you're a Democrat, so you're not in involved in all the discussions, but do you think this dispute might affect some of the other issues that they're going to take up like real soon, like whether or not if the General Assembly wants to move right to work off of the November ballot, they got to do it really quick. I mean, things like that. Might this whole controversy affect some of that? I'm just interested in your take. I think it, I mean, it. there's absolutely the possibility for, particularly on the Senate side, obviously, for senators to uh, vent their frustration in 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 areas that are not, limited to education. I also believe, though, that to think that it would impact something like right to work, I, I believe that uh, um, the folks that that don't like unions are, are always managed to find a way to kumbaya on that subject. <laughs> but, yeah. but there are other subjects that, that I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say are necessarily um, so easily overcome. And before we get to other topics, I do want to point out that it has been reported in the Springfield News Leader that Senator Gary Romine, a Republican from Farmington, has threatened to filibuster all five of the nominees to the state board. Um, I would not be surprised if other Republicans, especially from rural areas, get involved with that. And I I could even foresee a scenario since I think the majority of the caucus uh, for the Republicans in the Senate is rural. Mm -hmm. um, Yes. That it's not out of the question that these nominees may not have enough votes to be confirmed anyways. I know that's a rare occurrence. It may may require some arm twisting, but that there may not even need to be a filibuster. Have you heard anything about that? Or I know you're in the House and the Senate is like the Temple of Doom, but I, I have to imagine that Gary Romine is not the only person who's upset about this. I would be shocked if Gary Romine's was the only person upset about this. So no, I, ha- I think that there's every reason to expect that there will be bipartisan opposition to all of these candidates, all of these uh, appointees. I guess is. Now, shifting slightly, because the Democrats in both chambers are so outnumbered, but especially in the House, um, and it's going to be an election year, and uh, and then you've got this stuff as a backdrop, and you've got, you know, as I said, they're going to have to do some sort of vote on right to work early if they want to get it moved, all these things. As a Democrat and as uh, the number two person in the House, how do you see you guys maneuvering at all as far as... The, or are there things that you're thinking that may be opportunities because it is an election year? Well, I think that – let me put it this way. I think that there are always opportunities to move forward in a bipartisan fashion. There are always opportunities to work across the aisle to stop or proceed. Um, I, you know, Charter schools I think is sort of a good example. There's There are many Republicans that are not in favor of it and um, if – you know, we, we saw that in this year's session, the 2017 legislative, legislative session, to the extent that it only passed with one vote to spare. So how that all, you know, works out from a legislative perspective, I think, really remains to be seen. And exactly what's going to be pushed and, and how it's going to happen remains to be seen. Now, from an election perspective, obviously, that's, that's sort of a different, a different perspective. Now, um, in, on the Senate side, Ron Richard, who's head of the Senate Republican, has talked about at least having a, quote, discussion. That's how his spokesperson told me yesterday on any sort of city-county merger in the city of St. Louis. You live in the county. Um, You know this has been a looming issue off and on for decades. Kind of how do you see that playing out right now? Um, There's getting some unrest locally about whether or not the state may try to intervene. I'm just interested in your thoughts. 
Well, I, I, I can say that I, the devil in any merger is in the details. It's as simple as that from my perspective. You know, we can talk about some of the benefits. We can talk about some of the pitfalls on a, on a large-scale level, sort of a, a bird's-eye view, as it were. But once you get into the weeds, things become extremely complicated. So my hope would be that if there's any, quote, discussion about it, that that discussion would would be at that level. Um, you know, if you want to have a merger, just just think just think about any department. How does that work now? And and again, there has to be a statewide vote for it. So if there's going to be a discussion, there has to be something that goes statewide. We, if my understanding is, we have to change our isn't it constitutional? Well, right now there's something in the constitution right. that lays out the process for the city and the county. Now, if they came up with a plan, let's I'm, I'm throwing this out there that made St. Louis and St. Louis County one mega city which I'm sure would stoke oodles of opposition, um, they could hypothetically put something on the ballot that says, if you vote for this, St. Louis and St. Louis County become a mega city, repealing the thing that's already in place. Or you mean a mega county. A mega county or something like that. Because actually what's been explained to me, and I've been covering this for decades, but this was an interesting angle, is I've been told that one of the complications, even of the city reentering the county, is the fact that the city is its own county. Right. And that regardless of all this other stuff, you deal with the constitutional things of basically two counties. Even if they're unequal on many levels, they're still two counties. So, yeah, my point is it could be done locally. They've tried to do it numerous times. It's failed every time, usually because the county doesn't want to go along with it. And I think the reason the statewide vote is even being discussed is there's this feeling that it would be easier to pass statewide because people in Pike County and Atchison County don't care about this, so they'll just vote yes, um, as opposed to doing it in the city and the county. I'm not sure if you've heard that from some of your municipal officials. You are a former municipal right. official yourself. But um, what would be kind of your mindset? Do you think this should be only a city and a county decision, or do you think it, it should be statewide? I, I couldn't weigh in on that, honestly, I, just because just just because I want to know the details before I'm going to vote on something. That's That's – just kind of where I come from. Yeah. So so I couldn't I can't even say that I think it's a good or a bad idea. It might be an excellent idea if all of the details are worked out and it might still be a horrible idea even after all the details are worked out. And my response to the folks in Pike County though would be, you know, how would you feel if a statewide if if the if the voters in St. Louis and Kansas City and Springfield and Columbia got to decide if your county was merged with an adjacent county. I have a feeling that at the end of the day Missourians are going to understand that they they're not going to like that either. And and, and this is another thing that I, I was at the first better together mm-hmm. event back in 2013. And one of the things that I believe that they said right away that they were taking off the table is they were not going to talk about consolidating school districts, which I know would be extremely controversial for many reasons. But if you're talking about something that divides the St. Louis region by race, by socioeconomic level, uh, by, by economics, which kind of ties into socioeconomics, there is no better example of the division than the amount of school districts that are in St. Louis and St. Louis County. Absolutely. Uh, But I would have to imagine that any proposal that would merge the city and the county school district into one school district would would come up with a lot of opposition, even though it might actually do a lot of good in the end for some of the people who are are less well off. I I, I know that's probably not going to happen, but as somebody who knows education policy, what do you think of that idea? Well, first of all, before Michael Brown was killed – 
Richmond Heights and Clayton were the only municipalities that I'm aware of in the county that had even bothered to look at the potential of merging from a municipal level. And uh, the school district situation was probably, I I would put it at an absolutely better than 50% factor in why that exercise didn't didn't come to fruition. And so, I mean, people – feel very strongly about where they are in their local school districts, whether they really, really are unhappy or whether they're very, very happy. And in the case of Richmond Heights and Clayton, it was, you know, there was Richmond Heights folks felt that, and this is a quote, this isn't me, this isn't my opinion, this is stuff that was being told to me at the time was, well, Clayton doesn't want our children. And um, I actually had a member of the board from Clayton say that, um, Clayton was the Fendi person. Richmond Heights was the was the knockoff, and so <laughs> so if you come to the situation, if you come to a discussion from those perspectives, you don't want, you're too good for us. You don't want our children, and you just want to be like us. It's never going to work, no matter what. Even even if voters were to approve it, it doesn't work because you know you're you're, you're talking the sharks and the jets trying to get together by uh, by 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 f- elective fiat, and I just don't think that. I think that you never overcome those problems. I mean, one of the reasons that, that we have such varying uh, uh, taxing burdens in yeah. St. Louis County is really because of the different school districts. Absolutely. It's all yeah. about the school districts. Yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, anybody who's writing about it, yeah, that's the key reason. It's not. It's even more than the local governments because the major your major tax chunk goes to the public schools. Right. Now, I'm originally from a different state, but I spent four years in the Post-Dispatch Washington Bureau, and I lived in Maryland. And in Montgomery County, which is the main county that surrounds Washington, D.C., similar to uh, St. Louis County, it's one school district, one massive school district. Now, there was close to 20 different high schools and all these sub-districts within it, but it was one school district, one school board. But the thing I noticed... There was still disparity. Oh, I'm right. sure there St. Louis there was schools. still there was exactly. still disparity where some high schools were considered better than others, and as a result, your property values, you know, were um, affected by that. So my point being that even having one big school district doesn't always affect. But I mean, I, doesn't always correct all the. But problems. One, I think you're absolutely right. But one thing that I think has been good about Better Together is it has prompted reporters like me and policymakers like yourself to discuss these things a little bit more seriously. And I, I just mentioned that because, you know, Better Together does have Rex Singfeld behind it. And I think Joe confirmed that in her reporting. And while Rex Singfeld has not always gotten his way on things, he has a lot of money and he could probably get something at least before voters. Uh, kind of shifting gears a little bit to, to another thing that might come up next session. We've talked about this with some of our other guests, mainly on the Republican side, is I do want to kind of t- ask about what the legislative response to Amendment 2 is going to be. And Amendment 2, for our listeners, is is a constitutional amendment that set uh, campaign donation limits within the Missouri Constitution. I think everybody at this point agrees that there are a lot of flaws, flaws, (laughs) loopholes, problems with Amendment 2. And out of all the suggestions that have been put forward, you have actually produced, I think, two of the most important ones. One is the fact that Amendment 2 did not really have much language to stop coordination between candidates and PACs. Because right now, you could go to a fundraiser for a PAC that is ostensibly going to help Gina Minton right. say, hey, 
I think you should give a million dollars to this Even pack. though technically it's independent. Just, right. Just as long as you don't make clear that it's going to help you later, somebody could give a million dollars to the pack and then eventually help you later. And the pack could spend all that on you, and you could still beat that right at, at that fundraiser. And that's legal, the way the law is written. And, and the other thing is that right now in, in Missouri – it is it is very easy for a candidate to take the amount of money in their treasury and give it to a 501c4. I talked with James Clark about this uh, a couple weeks ago, and he said that Missouri statutes specifically say that you can give your money to a charitable organization. 501c4 is a charitable organization. Yeah, just so our listeners know, James Clark is the executive yeah. director of the Ethics Commission. So those are two things that I think we talked about on mm-hmm. social media that maybe I, – I could hypothetically see both parties – saying we need to fix these areas. I could also see them being like, no, we don't want to do anything. Let's just leave these gaping loopholes in place. I'd like you to kind of expound, expound upon that. Well, I, I think that I think that you're, you're right. Those are both really difficult issues and they're both big big problems and sort of glaring loopholes in Amendment 2 as well as the municipal stuff, which I know we even talked about it before. Yes, we did. That was a 2016 session. I remember having that conversation. But as to the coordination, it works It works to the detriment of the public in a number of ways. One of them is, um, as we discussed, that, that the, this PAC could spend all of its money on me. So there could be a PAC saying, we love Gina Mitten, and I can actually go to lobbyists. I could have fundraisers say, don't give money to my actual, my candidate PAC, my candidate committee, which is Mitten from Missouri. You could give, uh, you know, Gina Mitten's great PAC and uh, give a million dollars to it. And then Gina Mitten's great can spend a million dollars on my house race in 2018 and and that's perfectly that's perfectly legal so long as I am not coordinating with that other pack I'm not saying I want my mailers to go out this day or whatever that other pack basically runs the campaign and all that I am is a figurehead to some extent the other way that it works out to be problematic is that it's a way to get around the candidate committee to candidate committee donations which are often used as you know um, on both sides of the aisle to help other candidates become a elected. And so it'd be the same situation in that I can have a fundraiser, I invite donors and lobbyists and say, don't give to Mitten to Missouri, give to, uh, it could be called anything. And that's one of the real problems is that those PACs don't even bear any relationship to the person that's actually directing the donations. And so I could have, my my, my PAC could be the, the Jason Rosenbaum PAC, but in actuality, what that PAC is going to end up doing is giving money that to, to other House candidates. And I can't say, Jason Rosenbaum, please give $500 to Joe Manis or whatever. But what I can do is put on social media, I think that Joe Manis should win this election. And and it, again, it's another end round, and um, and it it removes transparency. So I think that sort of the 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 fix to that is to is to tighten up the coordination um, laws on both on both sides of that. In that, um, I don't think that any candidate or anybody that has a candidate committee should ever be allowed to direct fund direct donations to any other continuing PAC under any circumstances. Um, as to the 501c4 stuff, again, that to me is sort of an easy fix to the extent that you could limit it to a 501c3, which doesn't have the, you know, doesn't have the ability to do that um, political stuff. The other thing is, is that, look, Democrats, it's, it's, it's not new news to say the Democrats have been hollering about the need for transparency in 501c4s, and it's 
certainly uh, been exacerbated since the governor's decided to form a new Missouri and not disclose any of his contributions and where that money's coming from, where that money's going, um, and really basically running only on the federal level, despite the fact that it's working on a state level. So those are all problems that really... I know that our caucus is uh, putting forth legislation to fix these things. We'll see if the Republicans are interested in working together on it. And, and Joe has made this point numerous times, and I've come around to agreeing with this, but eventually it took a little <laughs> bit of prodding. <laughs> but, you know, I, I think that the Republicans can can kind of like do nothing and just wait for more ballot initiatives to either not really fix the problems at stake or cause even more problems or they can kind of sit down, maybe with Democrats, come up with ways that they feel that they can plug some of these deficiencies in Amendment 2. I've already heard Representative Justin Offerman talking about limiting donations to county municipal candidates, mm-hmm. which we've talked about before. Um, this this might be a good instance for them to actually do something because I know in the past they didn't do anything because they liked the other system where there were no limits. And but then many of them didn't because they discovered the downside is your opponent could get a million-dollar check. And all of a sudden your vote didn't. I mean we we had a number of former legislators on our we, show. We could debate Re- that. Republicans who uh, said they regretted yeah, getting rid of And we could debate that, that into, into infinity. But as long as Amendment 2 is in the Constitution, doesn't matter. Like there's going to be donation limits. So that's, and it's that's, hard to get something out of the Constitution once it ends. Right. Right. And 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 I mean, look, we, we Amendment Two was not very well crafted. Amendment Two was not crafted in coordination with the Ethics Commission, which is a problem. But it's the law of the land, and what seventy percent of Missourians supported it, and for and for good cause. And that's that to me, though, is really what the takeaway needs to be: is that if the majority party in the General Assembly does wants to stick its head in the sand and say we don't have to address this problem, ultimately it's going to be addressed for them. And the problem is, is that it'll be addressed in a way that doesn't necessarily work. And that I think is should be the lesson to Amendment Two is. You know, the people are going to make it happen one way or another, and it might take a long time. It might take less time, and depending on the issue. But uh, you know, recreational marijuana, medicinal marijuana is a great example of that. It's, I believe, going to come to Missouri eventually. And the bottom line is that should be done at the level of the General Assembly because then we can craft a bill that actually works in conjunction with existing statute, works in conjunction with our with our constitution, works in conjunction with the um, regulatory boards. So with Amendment 2, we've got an ethics commission that until they're able to um, until they're able to really go after some coordination, and I think that that will ultimately happen. Uh, we're, you know, the game has just shifted over a little bit, and, and I don't see it changing. Do you see the legislature trying to pass its own medical marijuana bill um, with this new approach Missouri bill looming? Well, we did. It actually uh, something did come to the House floor in 2016 or 2015. I can't remember which one. And um, it it we didn't get. The, I want to say it stalled at maybe 75 votes, maybe right around there anyway. Yeah. And um, folks that were proponents of were proponents of both medicinal and recreational voted no because they didn't feel it went far enough. And then, of course, folks on the other specter, other side of the spectrum voted no because it went too far. And that bill was so 
targeted. I want to say that you had to have a six-month di- a terminal diagnosis of less than six months, and it only had to be cancer. It could only be cancer. So if you had Lou Gehrig's disease, for instance, you still wouldn't qualify, and it still didn't pass. And and at the time, there was a petition going around that hadn't gotten the signatures. Eventually, somebody's going to get those signatures. And the reason I mention that is if the legislature wants any say on where the proceeds from this go, right? they need to get in gear. Because if they don't, there's going to be this essentially system, which I believe is a constitutional amendment. Yes, yes. it is. That, See, directs, the that directs the money to veterans. Now, I'm not saying veterans don't of deserve course. money, but if you want – and it's not a huge amount of money. It's like 4 or $5 million yeah. a year. But if they want to use that money for health care, roads, building – I don't. I don't know anything other than veterans. Let's, they have to have. They have to get involved here. But let's get to the heart of this, though. Why are these being done as constitutional amendments instead of statutory changes? Because the Republicans, since they've been in office, has shown time and time again, statutory change is not respected by the majority party in the General Assembly. And that's really, if you really want to get down to the heart of it, that is the heart of things. So the the change after the twenty ten were. The Humane Society got some puppy mill restrictions passed, and then in 2011, the General Assembly got rid got of a rid bunch of, of them. Immediately. And I'm not saying it was good or bad. And, and I'm were, just saying it that set a precedent. And Governor Nixon supported that for various reasons. Exactly. I don't, I don't want to get into that and situation. And he's a Democrat. And in fact, on Amendment 2, I mean, I, to be fair, it's not just the Republicans who share some of the blame for this. I mean, gov- former Governor Nixon at the time, uh, a Democrat— I mean, Claire McCaskill, some other Democrats kept threatening to have some sort of initiative petition drive to come up with new campaign donation limits. They didn't. So then you ended up with a conservative, social conservative, Fred Sauer, who got who basically crafted Amendment 2 for his own reasons. But the bottom line is, I think both major parties share some of the blame for that. Let's shift a little bit in our last few minutes to to politics a little bit. Before I ask you about how you feel the Democrats are going to do next year, I do want to ask you a personal question. Do you plan on running for for House Minority Leader next year, or or is that something that you're thinking about uh, right now? I'm right now. I'm focusing on what's going to happen in the 2018 legislative session. So we will cross that bridge when we get to it. Okay. Well, now that we got that out of the way, (laughs) now we're getting to the bridge. um, We're we're crossing (laughs) that bridge. You know, it's been interesting that since 2012. I've even talked to Republicans who have been in charge of the campaign effort, and they're like, okay, this is going to be the year we lose right. seats. Or 14 is going to be the year we lose seats. Oh, well, Trump is going to destroy everybody. We're going to lose seats in 16. Last year, the Democrats gained one seat, yep. but they're still in a big hole. Um, I think that there is some hope that Trump's approval ratings continue to go down in Missouri, and that helps Democratic cause, especially when some of the incumbents are, are terming out. Um, what's kind of your prognosis at this very fairly early juncture? It's a tough prognosis at this early juncture um, because I think that if you'd asked the same thing in November or December of 2015 about what was going to happen in November of 2016, I would suspect that everybody in this room would have been wrong. Um, so, with that being said, look, I think that 20 I think that 2018 is an opportunity for Democrats and um hopefully it's going to it's going to work out that way. I do believe that what's happening on a national level is really going to start resonating in ways that we hadn't seen before. Uh, I think that you know once folks once Missourians across the state have to fill out their tax returns, um my hope would be that there's a realization of exactly how far they're being 
um, sent down the river, so to speak, financially. Anybody that's got a, 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 their own business that's self-employed is going to be in big trouble, and that includes, you know, carpenters, the, the folks that come and fix your house, all of all of that stuff. Um, that is such horrific policy, and it's been supported by Republicans all up and down the the spectrum. I think that that is going to be a big topic next year. But some of the, I mean, the details, I mean, the tax implications, most of it won't go into effect until 2019. So in other words, some voters may still see this as rhetoric. Right. It kind of reminds me a little bit of the uh, Obamacare debate Mm -hmm. where it was very unpopular and, and it wasn't until it started going into effect that then you had several, well, millions of people who... Uh, who were like, wow, this is better than what we had. So it kind of flipped over several years. Now, I think part of the problem was that the the Democrats never did a good job of explaining what they meant. But my point is, is that the tax thing could run into the same situation where the Democrats could be preaching doom and gloom. And whether that's true or not, the average voter may not really get that until, let's say, after the election, 2019, 2020, when they really see what their tax bill is, whether it's less or more. And I, and I think, that, yes, that could be a problem. And um, it, it'll be our job to try and make sure that that message gets out in different ways than it, than it is right now. We'll now, see what happens. Now, can you, I mean, one of the key things is that this is an off-year election. Mm-hmm. Often you don't have, some of the Democrats always have trouble getting their base out. So here you've got, you know, African-Americans that need to be uh, energized. They're talking about whether or not it's going to happen in Alabama, because that's going to be key to whether mm-hmm. or not the Democrat pulls an upset. But here in Missouri, uh, I mean, Claire McCaskill, uh, House Spe- I mean, uh, State Auditor Nicole Galloway, they will need a huge African-American turnout to help them fend off strong challenges from Republicans. They will also need a lot of students who may be affected by the tax bill. So as a Democratic activist, how do you do that? I mean, do you think that that's going to be able to be happening? Do you think suburban women are going to come out and back you? Or is there stuff that the Democrats need to do? Well, there's always work that everybody can do. But and I'm not suggesting that Missouri is Virginia. It's not. Okay. Uh, But what we saw happen in Virginia is, yes, these people got out. There is frustration amongst the Democratic base. And um, all that we can do is to continue to work that and to get the message out and to urge people to actually get to the polls. All that I could, you know, look, go to a Democratic club meeting, um, one that occurred in December of 2015 and one that's occurring in December of 2017, and you're going to see, A, that they're having meetings, and B, that people are actually showing up. I think that what happened in November of 2016, as far as the Democratic base goes in Missouri, was a big wake-up call. Um, obviously, it's important to make sure that that momentum continues. I think that Stephen Weber has done a fantastic job going across the state and trying to get our message out and organizing and getting people together. I was actually just down in the boot heel a couple of weeks ago to just a little event, but but you know we're we're going across the state and we are letting people know that we're here, we're organized, and we need their help in 2018. And this may seem like kind of an odd question to ask, but with the setup, I think it'll make sense. So in 2014, I would contend that strong performances by people like Deb Lavender, Jill Shoup were critical for Steve Stanger to win. In fact, if Jill Shoup would have lost, I think Stanger would have lost too. Now, I don't know if the Republicans are going to field 
a, a strong candidate against Stenger. I do know that there's a primary opponent that's right. planning to spend a lot of money. I know that there are people who are really upset with Stenger, people who are really ready to defend him. Um, with that as a backdrop, how do you think the situation at a county level is going to affect things like statewide turnout? If people are really upset after this Democratic primary for county executive, is it possible that that might hurt legislative races? It could help hurt people like Claire McCaskill and Nicole Galloway? Or is it too early to tell whether that primary is going to be as as nuclear as Dooley Stanger was? Um I don't. I don't believe that primary is going to be as nuclear. That's just my prognos- prognostication. But I don't know that you know. I don't know that that'll hold true. I, I do think that yes, absolutely, having a county race that doesn't that doesn't help bring everybody you know that doesn't work together. I guess would be really the way to put it. Uh, can create problems. There's no question about that, and that's true in any race. It's just it's it's no different when we have a presidential candidate than when the, you know who's who's on the ballot for president in a in a presidential year than who's on the ballot for. Um, you know, U.S. Senate or for county council, for county executive. So I think that those things absolutely have relationships to each other. How that ends up, you know, coming down at the end of the day, again, remains to be seen. And again, as you started this question by saying, you know, Senator Shoup and Representative Lavender being on the ballot was was a help. Those same things are also going to be true in 2018. In fact, both of those uh, women are yes. going to be candidates in 2018 and not just them. We're going to have candidates everywhere. We'll see what happens also in the um, U.S. 2 congressional primary. That could also be a vote getter and, or, or will help turn out. And um, all of those things work together. It's, you know, it's it's It's, it's like a complicated. big machine. It, yeah. I, I do just want to point this out as a parting thought. You know, we had Bill Otto on last year, and I actually came away from interviewing him like, wow, this guy is a candidate that's won tough races before. He seems to be working hard. He, he checks all the right boxes from a from an issue level. The, the DCCC completely ignored him. They didn't yep. give him a single set. And now I'm getting emails about how – from the DCCC about how bad Ann Wagner is now. I don't – you're not – a representative of the DCCC. It just seems kind of odd that they ignored Bill Otto in a year where Coster and Cander needed good turnout from that district, and now they're suddenly all on board with it. If, if DCCC people are listening, it seems like that was a missed opportunity last year to do what they're – it seems like they're trying to do. Well, now. although as it turns out, with the uh, massive Trump wave, frankly – It probably didn't matter. It wouldn't have mattered. I mean, I I mean, I'm, I, I, I believe that. But I think that um, – that that there is a broader point here. I mean, and we're going to be seeing. I'm really fascinated, frankly, more by this Alabama race than the Virginia race, uh, which the Democrats actually got a bigger chunk than they thought. Because I'm very curious. Because the polls are all over the place. Just just as a political junkie, I'm just curious. You know what happens and what that means. And I all, but but my one point, closing point, is that women, Democratic women, and not just Democratic women, but also Republican suburban women, I think, will be the Republican conservative women, Democratic women, African-American women voters. Those, I think, are going to be the key blocks that determine what happens um, next week, what happens next year. I really do. Uh, yeah, no, I think I think I think you're absolutely right. I think, um, frankly, I would call them the independent women voters or what it's, it's really going to going to make the difference. And, and um, you know, my are, are, are my 
Republican-leaning friends from Kirkwood going to come out and vote in 2018, and how are they going? How angry at Trump are they? Is really what it's going to come down to, from my perspective. Well, thank you for coming on our show. I think you actually just picked our outro music, "Independent Women" by Destiny's Child. There you. Oh my gosh! I think there you, you did have it. it. <laughs> I think you did. I was I was struggling with that. And for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. How would we follow you on Twitter? Any other part? At GC Mitz. And here is Destiny's Child to play us out. Until next time, so long. Child of